Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is all of it. I'm Tiffany Hansen in for Allison Stewart. So glad you're with us. The movie Made December explores what happens when we forget that the lies we tell ourselves are lies. The film stars Natalie Portman as Elizabeth, an actress preparing for the role of a woman whose story is ripped from the headlines. Gracie Atherton, you played by Julianne Moore, believes that her relationship is like a Romeo and Juliet story, two true loves separated by society. The thing that separated them is the law. She was jailed for the child rape of a 13-year-old boy she met while in her 30s working in a pet store. We meet them 20 years later. That woman and now man, Joe, played by Charles Melton, are married with children and living a normal-ish existence outside of Savannah, Georgia, until the actress Elizabeth shows up to study as part of her preparation. Her presence stirs up a lot, and unspoken traumas become, become bubbling up, come bubbling up, and Elizabeth's motivations become murkier. Here's a clip from the trailer. Do you remember when you first met? You came to the pet store looking for a job. It was summer after sixth grade? Seventh. Why do you want to play me? When they sent me the script, I thought, here is a woman with a lot more to her than I remember from the tabloids. What would make a 36-year-old woman have an affair with a seventh grader? People, they like see me as a victim. I wanted it. May-December was inspired by the real story of the late Mary Kay Latorno, a teacher who had sex with her student in the late 1990s and later had a family with him. Letourno died in 2020 at the age of 57. The film is nominated in five categories in this weekend's Independent Spirit Awards, including Best Feature, Best Screenplay, Best Lead, and Best Supporting Performance for Natalie Portman and Charles Melton, respectively. Filmmaker Todd Haynes is up for Best Director for the film. His previous films include the Velvet Underground documentary and Carol, starring Kate Blanchett. Haynes joined us back in November to talk about May-December when it first came out. Allison started by asking him what hooked him about the script after producer Natalie Portman had sent it to him. She sent me the script right at the height of COVID, there was a lot of every, uh, script circulating, a lot of stuff being read, a lot of speculation about when we were going to all get back to work and what we were going to do next. So I was reading more stuff than usual. And this script by Sammy Birch, a, a, an emerging writer with an incredibly distinctive and confident mm-hmm. uh, voice, uh, really impressed me um, in, in so many ways. I mean, I think it was this sense of, of discomfort. Uh, that she conducts mm-hmm. with such confidence in the in the course of the storytelling, and I think the the the, the initial stroke of of genius I think in this in the way she structured it is that it's all set twenty years after the fact, twenty plus years after the fact, after the tabloid event, after the mm-hmm. the arrest, after the incarceration, 
And so what you're really seeing is the way people survive these kinds of crises or try to. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it, 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 to me, it was like, it, it, of course, it's this exotic, disturbing, extreme, extreme example of, of, a, of, a, of a story of a marriage, of a love relationship that crosses all these boundaries. But the way we all survive our lives, our marriages, our commitments is a universal thing mm-hmm. that I felt, you know, sort of simmered through this script with such an interesting understatement throughout and tension. And so you're really observing this, what happens when this actress, as you described in your setup with the actress coming to town, played by Natalie Portman, begins to crack away at the very strong fortification that has surrounded this family all these years and kept them going. Yeah, they've all put things, and we've all done this, put things in little boxes and pushed them to the side so you can go forward. And here comes Elizabeth opening, tipping open the boxes and saying, what's in there? What's in there? Exactly. What's in there? Exactly. And you and you initially think, oh, okay, she's going to be our way in. She'll be the reliable narrator. She'll be the person that we can identify with as the outsider. <clears throat> and as the story starts to unfold, and she it almost begins as a sort of investigative journalism mm-hmm. process where she's interviewing people and she's interviewing Gracie and Joe and the kids and and people in in Gracie's life. And we, we set the film ultimately in Savannah, Georgia, in the Tybee Island community, beach community. It's about 20 minutes outside downtown Savannah. Uh, you begin to question really uh, her motivations, mm-hmm. how far she's going to go, um, how many boundaries she herself is, is going – will cross mm-hmm. in the process of seeking the quote-unquote truth of this story and serving her needs as an actor and representing this character, depicting this character that Julianne plays. Um, and so you're left with this sort of shifting sense of fidelity uh, between the two characters and trust mm-hmm. that never really ever resolves. And what the film ultimately becomes, I think, is a, in the third act is Joe's story the man in the middle of all this who has sort of been locked up mm-hmm. in decisions made for him uh, when he was way too young, but that he has also been a dutiful father and, and you know in his life and he's raised these kids and the family life has taken the, the focus mm-hmm. of their energies and their time. And what loom, another thing that is looming over the story, which only spans about three weeks in Savannah, is the imminent graduation of the last two kids, the, the twins, who are about to leave the house. And all of a sudden, even before great, uh, Elizabeth enters the mm-hmm. scene, you feel that these, this couple is about to be, have to f- confront each other in ways they haven't all these years. This was originally set in New England. And so it, for practical reasons, it's too hard to shoot for three, three weeks in New England. But I'm wondering if, if relocating it to outside of Savannah, which has got sort of a, its own energy around it. How could you use this new location and this southern island community and island community ethos to tell this story? Yes. Um, I mean, there were really interesting things about Camden, Maine and the original concept. Uh, Camden, Maine is almost the phantom city for Peyton Place. Mm-hmm. I don't think Sammy herself and I, I don't I think I may have visited Camden years and years ago. I don't think she had, but she used it for all those sort of evocative, mythical reasons. And and but it was pract- practical purposes. When when we finally realized when we might be able to make this movie, it was the f- 
the only schedule that opened up for me, Julianne, and Natalie was the fall of last year. And there was no way to shoot May. It had to be May. Graduation. Graduation month. Uh, in the in the in the Northeast mm-hmm. and then uh, in anywhere in in May in Maine, um, and uh, Sam Lasenko is the production designer on this film, and he and I had just been working on another project that got waylaid, and I had just been to Savannah. Uh, for the Savannah Film Festival not too long before. I'd been there a few times before for the festival. And we thought, wow, what about this place? This really could play for the spring in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, it's laden with such disturbing layers of American history. It's also preserved in ways that mm-hmm. is unusual for American cities architecturally. It's why people visit Savannah. And we thought, mm, it didn't make sense that the, the, the Gracie character would be in historic downtown Savannah, uh, too exposed, too claustrophobic, too visible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that would be a place you could imagine this actress coming and staying in a little fancy inn, right? <laughs> and But we looked on the map and saw this little island, this island community. It's only 20 minutes away from downtown Savannah of Tybee. And so we went and visited last, it was just last August at the mm-hmm. height of the, the heat, uh, you know, summer in, mm-hmm. in Georgia and found our instincts confirmed by what we saw and what we, what we encountered. And we even like went off the beaten path of the Savannah Film Commission that was giving us suggestions of houses to look at for locations and found that house that becomes a real centerpiece for the film, found that street with the Spanish moss dripping Mm -hmm. off the oak trees on your drive toward these houses built in the late 70s, 80s, Um, put a note on the door of our favorite one and heard back from that guy (laughs) while in town. You know, it doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. But a series of sort of circuitous things and and unexpected things uh, and, and... you know the surprises of 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 filmmaking yeah. and the pressure of having very little time and very little money to get this thing made actually ended up producing all of these interesting outcomes when we saw that house and we were in that humid socked in you know uh, marshland thick thick <laughs> with the precipitation lodge between the sliding glass doors in the living room and in the window mm-hmm. and it the way it smudged your visibility out onto the onto the marshland that it sits on right in the dock in the backyard um it was like yeah this is even more uh, this seems even more fitting of a, of, a, of, a, of a place that's secluded, that's isolated, that's enjoyed its sort of distance from the rest of the world, but, in, but, in, but you're also trapped in it and you can't venture freely within it. And it's beautiful, but it's also contained and sort of stifled. My guest is Todd Haynes. We're discussing his film May, December. So Elizabeth shows up, uh, this actress, and she's there to watch, to learn Gracie's mannerisms. She says to understand Gracie's point of view. And when they first meet, they are sizing each other up. And they're eye to eye. And Gracie notes that they're the same size. What did you want to capture when these two women are eye to eye for the first time? I think think in a... Initially, you want to look at their differences, 
you know, they do remark on their similar heights. But I think the the sort of suspense of the film is in the, the ways that slowly we watch the transformation of Elizabeth and her process of trying to pick up on the cadences and the styling and the makeup uh, that Gracie wears and the mm-hmm. colors that she wears and that you watch this slow transformation of one actor becoming uh, this character trying very hard to embody who this woman is physically and but you but you realize along the way that it's more than physically that there are things about each of these women that remind you of each other in ways that one suspects they're not entirely prepared to see in themselves. Mm-hmm. And those ways of seeing and not seeing, those ways of being able to look at things around you but not at yourself, uh, I think create this whole dynamic, the subtext that's going on through the film. And it was it's played out in these sequences that I – at an early stage of the preparation process, I thought would be best served in shots that hold and frames that feel discomfortingly mm-hmm. long and mm-hmm. static and unyielding. And, and you know, look, I could not read this script and not think of films like Persona, Bergman's Persona right off, mm-hmm. right? The process of these two women who kind of are merging with each other and starting to blur, one of whom, in fact, in that film is an actress and the other is a caretaker who comes to serve her when she has a event with uh, stage fright and has stopped speaking. Uh, and there are those frames that were ever, you know, mm-hmm. emblazoned in my memory as a film goer of Liv Woman and Bibby Anderson um, sort of circling each other, mm-hmm. comparing hands in the backyard, wearing those matching white straw hats in the beautiful Sven Nickvist cinematography, you know, and then ultimately so all looking toward the lens of the camera together as if it's a mirror. And in our film, we have all these scenes in mirrors. Yeah, there's a lot of mirrors. Some, yes. I mean, some of them I, I imagine were quite difficult. The, there's a scene in a dressing room yeah. where we see... We, we see all different sides of these two women and yeah. we get it we get an inkling not only do we see the way they're reacting to the young daughter trying on clothes we get an inkling of um Gracie's meanness towards her daughter and the sense that she is not the sweet uh demure possibly victimized person she's got a mean streak she's got a mean streak and that you also realize this is an inheritance. Yeah. That you feel like this is something that is not just originated in Gracie. That it's most likely something that she learned mm-hmm. from her mother. I think that scene that, that starts to talk about her daughter's body as she's trying on different dresses for her graduation. It's, I think there are very few women in the world who don't watch that scene and recognize mm-hmm. that conversation. Yeah. And not and the lack of consciousness about what's being said. It's just that it's being said with a stranger with intre- incredible power and influence who's witnessing it. And it puts it into another frame, a heightened frame that makes us, the viewer, even more uncomfortable watching it. But it's not necessarily something that we haven't seen mm-hmm. played out between mothers and daughters for generations. 
The two women, as you said, we're looking to see how much alike they are and how different they are. And there's lots of little really great details. And I'm sure you, you know, obviously you worked with your costume designers. I'm thinking about Natalie Portman's character, Elizabeth, shows up and she's trying to dress down. So she's got the hat and the sunglasses on, but she's wearing a Cartier (laughs) bracelet and watch. So she's got about $6,000 on her wrist. And that wouldn't even come to her mind to take that off. No, no. And yet the rest is like the black or the maroon shifty, Mm -hmm. the dress, the little straw hat that's trying to sort of, uh, you know, deal with the climate Mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, No, there's an unconsciousness about her, obvious, Mm -hmm. that that you you mark at the very beginning and yet you accept – and you sort of go, oh, yeah, of course, she's from Hollywood and she, you know, she's an actress. And how nice is she going to be to these local folks in the South? And how mean is she, you know, whatever. These are the kind of questions you begin asking until you really start to see a major shutter vision on the part of this character. And how f- the lengths to which she really is going to go to serve her own needs and how disposable the people around her really are. We're discussing the film May, December with this director, Todd Haynes. We'll talk a little bit more about the character Joe, as well as the use of music in the film after a quick break. This is all of it. Welcome back to All of It here on WNYC. I'm Tiffany Hansen in for Allison Stewart. So let's get back to Allison's conversation with Todd Haynes who is nominated in the Best Director category of this weekend's Independent Spirit Awards for his film May-December, which is additionally nominated for Best Feature and Best Screenplay. Two of its stars, Natalie Portman and Charles Melton, are also nominated for Best Leading and Best Supporting Performance, respectively, for a grand total of five categories that May-December is nominated in. So let's get back to Allison's conversation with director Todd Haynes. She asked him how he and his team picked Charles Melton to play alongside the powerhouse talents of Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. It was a process that I, you know, went through with my longtime casting director, Laura Rosenthal, New York-based. We have a wonderful, long and rich relationship. And there are certain films that require the discovery of certain actors who may who may not be very well known, but who have a disproportionate <clears throat> impact on how the film really works. And this was certainly the case with with Joe. Joe is a half half Korean um, kid raised in this community who we learn from the stories of the past mm-hmm. as it's on, as it's sort of filled in. Uh, got a job at a pet shop working part time uh, when he was a teen, a young young teen, and that's how he met um, Gracie and where this this the sexual and romantic relationship began. Um, so we did our job, you know. We put mm-hmm. out a breakdown for the for the character and got tapes of actors reading for the role and some really fine and interesting. Um, Korean actors and half Korean actors, and um, but Charles and and Charles is an actor who may, some people know from the show Riverdale. He he began I think in the second mm-hmm. season of Riverdale, which is very well loved uh, for followers of that show. I I had watched it when it first uh, I saw a couple episodes at the very beginning when mm-hmm. it premiered, but I did not see Charles on that show. So I 
I didn't know his work. And um, and Ch- what Charles did on that on that audition tape was was absolutely distinct from what other actors were doing. And I think it was the other actors' interpretation of Joe that that felt a little closer to what I had imagined him to be. And this is again what you what you what you in in hindsight what you realize is the incredible part of the creative process mm-hmm. is that the the serendipitous ways that you find and meet people and the way you're introduced to this actor or that location or this setting or this creative partner deepens what you're doing and makes it more specific and and teaches me the director more about what the story is. Charles was more pent up and more um, tentative and more almost like pre-verbal. Like you really saw somebody who had been so completely physically shut down mm-hmm. and was and was dutiful and was uh, supportive of Gracie and her private panics in the bedroom that we witness. And he was a loving father to these kids, you know. But I all of a sudden saw not only the present of story of Joe, but I saw the past as mm-hmm. well in ways that I think I was almost holding off from <laughs> being able to yeah. fully confront, you know. I want to say it's the this is funny. There are some very funny moments that and it's about pacing. It's about you use music and you use visuals to bring some humor into it. Was that in the script or was that something that you and and your screenwriter discussed? It, it, no, it was it was in the script. I don't think we ever – they the humor is situational and character-based. And so it's not like gags or jokes mm-hmm. or things. They don't sit on top of <clears throat> the content of the, of the storytelling and the writing. And you, and you, and you don't know how, to, how you feel about them as you read them. Mm-hmm. That's the thing is you're sort of interrogating yourself as you – that's how I felt when I first read the script. And that was what I so loved about it and wanted to find a way in the film that that would be available to the audience, that they were almost compu- compelled – to be interpreting what they're watching, but that it should be a pleasurable process, even with the discomfort that it that it stirs up, and the way it keeps asking you to shift your sort of expectations and stuff that you bring to a story like this. Um, I think it was in the editing room where F- my editor Fonzo Gonzalez and I would be watching these scenes unfold and go because we weren't laughing out loud while shooting it we also mm-hmm. were just racing through we shot this movie in 23 days in Savannah under a very tight schedule we were having a fantastic time it was a real synergy among mm-hmm. the creative partners and the actors on this film so it was a it was a very positive experience on, despite those those <laughs> challenges uh and 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 I made some strong choices about how to frame it and shoot it. They didn't really have alternative options. You get there, what you get. You don't get upset. There was one <laughs> way to do it, and if it didn't work, I don't know what we would have done. Um, it's a very restrained, austere kind of visual language. Mm. Um, but so you, and this is true for any movie. However you shoot it, and however much time you have, you're getting to know what it is as you're cutting it. You don't have time to really 
assess what it is while you're shooting it. You're just trying to get all the pieces. And then you start to live through it and breathe through it and watch mm. it play out and, it's, and find its whole, whole body and its whole shape in the yeah. editing room. And it's a mysterious part of the process. And you also have to leave all your expectations behind, all the projections that you had and the, you know, uh, the visuals and the planning. It's, it's all finished. Whatever stage mm -hmm. you're in in the present is all you have, and you have to make it work. Let's talk about the music. It's really important in the film yeah. um, and its placement in the film. So I want to talk about two composers. The first, is it Michel Legrand? Yes. Score from 1971, The Go-Between. This involves uh, a young boy who has a crush on an older woman. Um, how did that music become a part of the film? I, I, I suspected that part of the way you, you could have that kind of fun um, sense of interpretation while watching this movie is through various kinds of framing elements. Mm -hmm. And I thought music could be one of those. And so while I was putting together my image book and looking at movies and getting ideas and inspiration and, and trying to put it all on the page to share with my creative partners, which is the way I like to work, mm -hmm. uh, I watched The Go-Between on, on Turner Classic Movies one day. Now, this is a film. It's a Joseph Losey film from 1971, very well-regarded. Julie Christie, mm -hmm. Alan Bates, beautiful film, right? But it's a film that's sort of fallen out of circulation in the United States, it's very doesn't show up much. And I think I saw it when I was a teenager, when it came out, a mm -hmm. young teen, and haven't seen it since. And I watched this film, and I was astonished by this Michelle Legrand score that plays so boldly and ominously right up front and is basically ahead of the story that starts to unfold as you watch the film. And I was like, wow, that is so interesting. The, the subject matter of the film has maybe some vague parallels, but they're they're quite different from, it's a very different kind of movie than it's set in the turn of the century in mm -hmm. England, and it's a coming of age story of a 12-year-old boy, and it's, but, um, the and, and the music arguably sits as far outside, if not more so, of that film and your experience watching it as it as it does at times in, in May, December, or at least as up front and mm. in your face. Uh, and so I started to just add the score. When I, when I finished my image book and sent it around to my partners, I was like, play this score while you turn the pages of the image book. Let me play a little bit. Yeah. the drama we understand it's a little bit like your point it's a little bit ahead of the story yes. and then how does the second composer come in well marcella was always going to be my composer gonna... for the film <clears throat> and i just this was just marcella Zarvos. marcella Zarvos. and i've worked with marcello on one other project prior to this dark waters and it was a wonderful experience and he's a brilliant composer and when i found this music i i sort of just for the sake of putting us all in the same place in, in sort of method uh, while making mm -hmm. the movie, I literally dropped cues into the script and we would play those cues while we shot the movie for the, all the actors and the crew. And I sent, and I initially did that for, for Marcelo. And I said, Marcelo, the score is crazy. <laughs> it's gorgeous. It's wild. It breaks every rule of what 
of what film scores do, and he compl- he was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing." Um, and I kind of hoped he. I was thinking he's a very busy, uh, in demand uh, composer. And I thought if he had time, he could send us little sketches of ideas while we were shooting, and we mm-hmm. would throw those in. Um, but what it did is it just became more and more affixed to what the film was becoming, and yeah. we cut the film to the score. And this is usually where temp scores come into play, when you're cutting, not when you're shooting a movie. <laughs> um, and finally... I came to Marcelo with my tail between my legs, and I was like, Marcelo, I think we need to incorporate this remarkable Michelle Legrand yeah. score and and have you make it your own and re-record it and rearrange it and, 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 and bring in these tonal and other elements that we'd thrown into the temp. Um, and he did just that, and it, it, the result is something really pretty extraordinary. That was director Todd Haynes in conversation with Allison Stewart. The film they were talking about is called May December, nominated for five Independent Spirit Awards. That award ceremony is being held this weekend.